peace, peace, and welcome to another discussion. This is Cook on Monday Morning. These are the final episodes of Cook on Monday Morning. And so I have my favorite people in the world helping me wrap up uh, the podcast uh, before it goes into a new iteration. One of those men I've known for quite some time. We have the great, uh, I have the great honor of serving with him on the Board of Education. It's been really beautiful to see uh, his journey, his growth, uh, to, to, to experience his energy, to get his perspective and insights. He's, a, I think, a treasure to the people of San Francisco and um, a man I consider a brother. Mr. Uh, Faunga Moliga uh, has made history as the first Polynesian-American elected official in the city of San Francisco. He's like me, a native of the city. And so much more, so much more that I'm going to let him share with you and me. And I look forward to learning. Commissioner Moliga, what's up, beloved? Man, you know, I can't call it Commissioner Cook. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. Where are you going? I always love your, uh, your uh, Hawaiian-inspired gear. You always make me feel like I should be relaxing. <laughs> I'm on big time today, so I had to wear my favorite shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But even though you look relaxed, I know you're always grinding. Um, stop. It's interesting. It's interesting to figure out like how to start this. So like you know, we're we're it's, we're in December at the end of 2020. What are your some of your major reflections on the year? Let's start there. I think you know, uh, for me, I'm a family man. You know, my son. You know, he's in high school. He um, went through this long process of. Uh, you know, figuring out what he wanted to do for his uh, high school career. And so, uh, you know, that was a big moment for us. Um, I got engaged, right? And so uh, that was really special. And then, um, you know, I think the big shocker was uh, COVID-19, obviously, right? But, you know, I kind of take things in stride, right? I grew up in kind of trauma and, you know, messiness and issues. And so uh, this was like... On, a, on another level, you know? And so um, a lot happened for me this year, right? A lot of good things, a lot of challenging things. Um, we passed a lot of amazing resolutions on the school board, right? Um, we got the Psalm 1 resolution across the board, unanimously passed. Uh, we worked on transportation, you know, resolution, which, you know, people don't really think about, but it's a game changer for the school district, right? And then I think in the beginning of the school year, we passed educator housing, right? And so like all these things, um, you know, if you look back on happened in 2020, you know, so, but um, a lot of, lot, lot, lot of good, a lot of challenges, but, uh, you know, happy the year's coming to an end. You also got elected to the DCCC. That is, so, so like I just told you, so much <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that until I, forgot that I was like, oh yeah, you won an election this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That part. Yeah. Right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that uh-huh. was yeah. That, that was that was that was crazy too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned that you grew up in the city. Talk a little bit about, you know, your a little bit about your family story in San Francisco. How 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 long y'all been here? How'd you get like what? And then we'll go into you specifically. My mom, she uh, was pregnant with me in 1982 in American Samoa. You know, she had me, her and my dad had me out there. 
Um, I don't know what they were doing. Said they met up at some kind of school conference. And, um, you know, then they hooked up. And then she went to Honolulu, Hawaii to give birth to me, you know, because the uh, medical system out there in Samoa currently and at that time wasn't really that good. And so, uh, you know, she went through all the things around, you know, getting pregnant without getting married. And, you know, she went through her whole, you know, fiasco. And so um, um, when she had me in Hawaii, a year later, she brought me to San Francisco. And so my family's been in San Francisco, I think since like maybe the late 60s, early 70s. Um, they first migrated into, uh, you know, Army Street. Army Street down there in uh, Cesar Chavez. And, um, you know, my uncle came out here <clears throat> because he was in the military and then he brought my grandmother, which was his, um, you know, sister. And then um, that kind of like started our whole migration to, you know, San Francisco. Um, and then when my, when, when my mom brought me, I was, I was one, she brought me here. You know, we lived in Bernal Heights. I went to Paul Revere. Um, you know, we lived right there on Banks, uh, Cortland and Banks, um, three-story house. We were on the bottom, my auntie was in the middle, and my other cousins were on the third story. You know, it was just like a lot of us in there, I, probably it was about like maybe 30 of us up in that place, you know? Um, and so, you know, from there we just kind of scattered, right? And then, you know, I was young and next thing you know, I was in Hunter's Point. You know, I was living in Hunter's Point. We were on Harbor, uh, living with my other auntie and uncle and those guys. Um, just kind of doing the whole uh, migration life, right? You just got to kind of like find family to be with until you can get on your own feet. Um, so we were down Harbor. I was there when the earthquake happened. And I remember we were outside hula hooping and everything was shaking up. And uh, I remember going to school during that time because everything was shut down. And when you got to school, they just let you play games all day because they were trying to figure out, you know, how to deal with the crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, so, so I, I was in Hunters Point for a very long time up until about sixth grade. You know, and then, um, you know, like a lot of other uh, Samoan kids during that time, it was really tough, right? Really, really tough. Uh, grew up in the projects, right? Surrounded by my black brothers and sisters, right? Um, grew up in the Boys and Girls Club up there in, in Kiska, right? And so went through a lot of the same things that a lot of the kids up there were going through, right? And so it was really bad, right? And a lot of that was because of, you know, family structures and, you know, what was going on at the home. I ended up getting kicked out of sixth grade, was super bad with a bunch of kids, you know, having a good time in school, you know, just being, just being sixth graders. And, um, you know, they ended up <clears throat> doing a couple of things to young men, young Samoan men back in the days, if you were having like behavioral issues. So, um, you know, one, you would either get like arrested, sent to juvie, or two, they would just send you back to American Samoa. And so uh, that's what happened to me. You know, I had option number two. That was like, what do you want to do? It's like, all right, I guess I'll go back to the islands, you know, and I was, you know, going to go out there and you know, be with folks. And um, a little bit before that, my mother was like, man, you actually have a different father. <laughs> that was like a couple of months before. And he was like, she was like, he lives in Hawaii. Do you want to go stay with him instead? <laughs> I was like, you know, that, that actually sounds pretty good. You know, so, so that's what happened because you got to go from San Francisco to Hawaii to American Samoa. So I was with Pops for like a year and, uh, you know, just out there having a good time. You know, they, they weren't ready for a city kid, you know. 
but I had the time of my life. I, it was great. I time of my life going to the beach, you know, every weekend. Uh, but you know, still acting up in school. Ended up stealing one of my buddies' cool water cologne. You remember the cool water? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was hot back in middle school. Cool water. I needed yeah. me some cool water, and I took his cool water, <laughs> and I got in trouble. There's a number of things I want to pull out from the initial story. Um, and I want to stay on like the Polynesian community in San Francisco for a second, just to give some context, because, uh, you know, I always grew up around Samoans, uh, folks that are Polynesian. Um, and I, but I, I don't think that's common in the country. Like I'm under the impression that they are well represented across a lot of the United States. And, and there's like a, there's multiple ethnicities within that I don't think I even really fully know about, right? Like uh, within the Polynesian umbrella. So can you talk a little bit about, um, can you address a little bit of that? Like, you know, where, where, are, the, where are the strongholds for the Polynesian community in the States and who makes up people who are considered Polynesian? There was three large waves of migration that happened, right? And, you know, I'm not a historian, but based on my understanding on like how things were passed down, I think the last two happened in the 70s and then the 90s, right? So in the 70s and then in the 90s. When we talk about Polynesians, Polynesians is a, is a, is a territory that consists of the Pacific Islands, right? And so um, Polynesia is, <clears throat> one of three regions of the Pacific Islands. So um, within Polynesia, you have, you know, your 50th state of Hawaii, uh, you have places like Tonga, um, and you have places like Samoa, right? And New Zealand, New Zealand, you know, that's the triangle. Um, <clears throat> and then there's other, there's other territories such as Micronesia, where uh, you'll find uh, Guam, right? Guam is in Micronesia. And then there's, uh, there's Melanesia, right? And so those are the three territories. And Melanesia, I think, is where, uh, that's closer to uh, Asia, you know, Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. right? That's closer to Southeast Asia. Um, so those are the three regions that you're talking about. And a lot of that, you know, in, in here today in the United States, they, we, we've had to formalize and call ourselves Pacific Islanders to bring the territories together so that we could be a larger block in terms of advocacy, mm -hmm. right? But in actuality, you know, how it plays out, they're all pretty different, right? The cultures are very different. The languages they speak are very different. Mm. Um, the the uh, immigration status is very different. Guam, American Samoa, um, I think there's one of the, Hawaii, and there's, I think, a, a couple of others. But those are the, actually the only three territories that, you know, are under the United States that, you know, are in the Pacific Islands, right? Mm. And so a lot of those uh, countries out there, they're pretty independent. That just kind of gives you a lay of the line of, uh, you know, the Pacific. And the migration patterns uh, historically have been, you know, a lot of it has been due to employment, right? And so you have a wave of folks who migrated either to the United States, and then you have your other wave of folks who mi migrated to the other side, which ended up in like New Zealand, Australia. So when you go out in those areas, in New Zealand, you'll find a large population of uh, Samoans and Dungans out there. So that's that's a little bit about the migration. In terms of like where folks landed, 
um, you know, a huge, <clears throat> so currently right now, you'll find your largest pockets of Pacific Islanders in uh, LA County, San Diego, right? That we'll call that the Southern California region, uh, the Bay Area, which consists of San Francisco, Alameda, San Mateo, Contra Costa, pockets in um, Sacramento area. And then you'll have your other regions up in the Northwest, right? Seattle, trickles down in Portland. And then you have a large contingent of folks out there in, um, in Utah, hmm. right? Utah, there's a, a large Mormon population within the Pacific um, and Seven Day Advances, which has, a, you know, kind of like pulled people in those directions. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of the migration and people, you know, they pretty much congregated where Pacific Islanders could find jobs. You know, and, and, the, and the goal was, they call it tautua. You tautua to your family, right? And so uh, if you look at the, the clips of like videos in the past, you'll see um, families sending their folks off, you know, who are coming to the States. And, you know, you see it in a lot of like other uh, uh, folks are going to the States and sending money back home to the families, right? Mm-hmm. That is not as strong as it, in, as it is before you know, how, how it used to be. And a lot of folks have actually just settled in the United States. Um, so that's that's one. The other component that really spread the uh, community across the globe has been the military, right? And so the largest uh, employer of, um, one of the largest employers, we'll, we'll talk about Samoa and in Guam, is the military, right? And so the military industrial complex system is live and it is uh, thriving out there in the Pacific and, you know, due to the economy, they've been able to, uh, you know, it's one of the premier places to recruit individuals who go into the military, hmm. right? And so, um, therefore, you'll have, you'll see Pacific Islanders in a lot of places, right? You go down south, right? You go to the East Coast, you go to Korea and Europe, right? Um, and you'll see Pacific Islanders, mainly Samoans and, you know, folks from the, the Guamanian Islands, uh, in those regions, and and so the the condition of the community. So um, similar to what you'll see in some low income black communities, like you'll see like uh, a big emphasis on like being tough or like getting money or like you know whatever it is, all the dysfunction that happens <laughs> in in poor neighborhoods around like self destructive behavior. Um, and I, I'm just thinking about like growing up how the Polynesian community was represented in school. Cause like for the people I went to school with, like you're kind of like on the smaller side, you know, of folks that I went to school with that were Polynesian. They were like tall, they were like muscular, they played sports, you know, and um, and they were, were kind of always caught up in some stuff related to what was happening in the neighborhood. And um, that's like one side, a very narrow side potentially of like what I saw growing up. Talk about that, like respond to that and, and, and talk a little bit more about like what's happening in the Polynesian community in terms of housing, jobs, health. When folks see Samoans, we'll say Samoans, you know, they normally say, yeah, you're, you're on the smaller end of Samoan, uh-huh. right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm probably mixed with so many things, right? Like mm-hmm. I say I'm 100% Samoan, but my grandmother on my father's side, you know, she has a little bit of Filipino uh, my grand, my grandfather, he was from, uh, I think it was New Caledonia. He has, you know, so I think a lot of that, you know, based on your bloodline trickles down. Um, there is this theory out there that 
folks believe, you know, Samoans have this gene that they uh, inherited, which kept them alive because, you know, they were um, pretty much having to navigate the, the oceans. And while they were on the oceans, you know, they end up developing these genes that were able to like, you know, retain muscle and like mass to be able to protect them and keep them warm. Um, so the theory today is the genes still exist. However, we are no longer in, in those situations, right? And so there's a lot of talk around that. I wanna segue from that to say that, you know, there was a study that was put out by NPR that found Samoans as the, having the highest obesity rate in the world, right? The highest in the world. Like mm. that, that is just, you know, we're talking about the whole entire world, right? Um, in 2011, Samoans in California had the high, highest infant mortality rate to the point where we had to like get flagged by the Department of Public Health. They said, hey, what's going on with your community? We have to like, you know, organize and figure out what to do with you all. Assimilation hasn't really been easy for folks, you know, like Samoans do not like assimilation at all. Like we are like clapping back at everything, right? Very proud people, very like, you know, um, the culture is super strong, still existing. Like we live ba still based on our indigenous values. Like our Fa'asamo culture is still practiced today back at home. It's the center of our government system which was put in place by our forefathers that, you know, signed the deed of sessions when we were getting colonized, right? And so there's a bunch of things that our ancestors put in place um, that protects our land and protects our culture. And I say that because the struggles that you see today in America with our folks, for me, it's a, it's a, um, it's a fight. It's a struggle between those two, uh, those two, those two, uh, those two things that are pulling at each other, right? And, um, you know, in, in this country, um, we haven't really found a way to really support our indigenous Samoan Pacific Islander folks in a way that honors their culture and, and helps them biculturate into society, right? It's almost like, you know, you guys are brown. You brown people need to be doing this. Right. This is what brown people do in this country. This is how you should be. Right. And I think that has not settled well with a lot of our folks and it has caused a lot of problems. Right. However, it has not only caused problems with folks trying to get acclimated to this country, but it's made things very confusing. And, you know, there's a huge identity issue amongst, you know, the community in the Pacific Island Samoan folks. Right. Um, poverty has ripped through the community. Right. So we're not going to, you know, do what folks out here are doing or we don't understand. And so now you're left in a situation where um, life is not going to stop and you still have to move. And because, you know, there aren't enough structures in place to be able to guide these folks forward. Right. Then you just have a population of individuals and families who are just left out there stranded. Right. To figure it out on their own. Right. And so, you know, we'll talk about San Francisco. There's probably maybe like less than 10,000 Samoans in this, 10,000 Pacific Islanders, maybe about 5,000 Samoans in this city. Mm -hmm. But within the last month and a half, three get shot. Mm -hmm. That makes no kind of sense, right? And so like, when you look at the, uh, 
college admissions rate, the graduation rates, the trinity rate within our own school district, right? Why out of this pocket of kids, why is why are the the statistics so alarming, right? I mean, they're keeping up with like, you know, our black kids, our Latinx kids, right? Like the data is like, you know, we haven't been here long enough to be able to like understand uh, these issues to the point where it's just like devastating the community, right? And so uh, the, the, the problem with that though is again, there's no infrastructures in place, right? There's no infrastructures in place to be able to support that, that kind of like drop, right? So these folks are just like a free fall right now, right? Um, so a lot of the young men, you know, end up like working in uh, warehouses, security jobs, uh, you know, the, unfortunately a lot of our men, you know, are, you know, ending up in prison, you know, just kind of like the struggle, right? And, and I say that because like um, the struggles that our black, our people of color here in this country have undergone and have overcome, I feel like we are going through struggles that folks have struggled back in the 60s with, right? Back in the 50s with, you know, like, um, but I also want to say that um, I do feel very um, fortunate that we're not in those days, right? Like we're struggling it feels like we're struggling and we're, we're at a point where, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, you know, things have developed as much. However, there's been so much work by our black and brown folks, by our advocates, you know, who have trailblazed. And so I'm super thankful of the work that folks have done around, you know, equity, social justice, to allow like Pacific Islanders like ourselves to be able to find a place that, you know, has already spoken for the needs of people who are being marginalized, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot of work. You know, I think the health conditions are uh, really exacerbated. Um, Seventy percent of our Samoan kids in the city's families live in public housing, right? Seventy percent are either poor or below the poverty line in San Francisco, right? And so, you know, being, being in office now, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to be able to really focus and put some um, energy around prioritizing this because, you know, it could potentially really get into a situation where we would be in a major crisis, you know, with the community. My social worker teacher told me one thing that stuck with me. She says, she told me, you should think about this. She said, the government might be intentionally killing your people off, right? And when she said it, I sat there and I was thinking, and as I pondered on it, I was like, well, it makes sense. If you don't pay attention, if you don't pay a community any attention, if you don't fund them, if you don't, you know, resource them the way they need to be resourced, what eventually happens, you know, same thing as a flower or a plant. If you don't plant it, if you don't give it any sun, it just begins to fizzle away. I want to come back to your story a little bit. Uh, you know, you were appointed by the mayor of San Francisco while you were running for school board. Um, that was in 2018. That's one aspect of your story. <laughs> but then there's this other aspect of like you in high school, um, and what happened there. And so I want to like start there um, and then kind of go on this journey about what initially led you to run for office. Mm -hmm. So you're, you go to American Samoa, you eventually come back, you're in high school. Give a little overview of what happened with you in high school. When I got back, so I got back in America, like uh, 11th grade, you know, I went to McAteer, went to Turkey Day, you know, played with Chi Chi and all those guys in the 
you know, on the football field with all those Fillmore cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. It was a whole lot of fun. A whole lot of fun. Yeah, rest in peace to Chi-Chi. He just passed. Chi-Chi, that's right. The context. We'll put a news article up. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. But, you know, I came back to the same thing, right? Was acting, you know, a little bit out of control. Ended up getting kicked out of school. Uh, went to downtown high school, you know. And at that time, downtown was located on 22nd and Bartlett, I think it is, down in the Mission. Oh. Okay. And, um, you know, got caught up in the streets. And, um, you know, for a couple of years was just out there, you know, um, hanging out on the streets, doing everything, running the streets. Um, but I just, you know, I always told myself, you know, if the streets don't work out, I'm just going to keep going to school. So I just kept going to school, you know, uh, ended up graduating from Balboa High School. Um, and then, you know, I ended up going to City College. Um, and it was funny when I got to City College, uh, the counselor was like, you had grades to get into like a CSU, you know, like what happened? Mm. Um, you know, and that, and that's part of, you know, what I'm getting ready to, you know, so I'll, I'll save that and come back later. Um, so go to city, end up running track and, um, you know, while going from city and transit transferring over to San Jose state, um, I, you know, there was a lot of things that happened, ended up like homeless, you know, I was living in dope homes, you know, but still just grinding. Right. I just kept telling myself, you know, I just, I just got to keep going to school. I got to keep going to school. Um, and so I ended up at San Jose State and, uh, you know, found housing, graduated. Wait, did you want to come back to that? Because I don't want to rush over that. <laughs> I was I was homeless for like a couple of weeks, man. You know, okay. Sleeping in cars, living in dope homes, you know. Uh, it was rough. Yeah, there, there's a story behind it. You know, my parents had gotten divorced and, um, you know, we were living in the projects and I was around 20. And I told them, like, you know what? You guys are arguing too much. It's driving me out of control. And I had to leave. And so I ended up bouncing and I was looking for places to stay. And during those times, I was living with families. And, um, you know, one of my aunts was like, well, you got you got to go. You know, and at that point, I had nowhere to go. You know, um, I was going to Diablo Valley College at the same time. And I still wanted to go to school. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, my cousin lent me his car, had like a broken window, you know, but I was sleeping in the car the whole time, you know, going to class. I had to get my credits, right, so I could transfer. I was just almost there. And then, um, you know, one of my cousins, you know, and this is this is the thing. Like, God bless, God bless his heart. The person who ended up, like, taking me under his wing was a drug addict, right? And one of my, you know, I grew up with him, and I love him to die, right? He was a drug addict. He was like, well, you can come stay with me. You just know the situation, right? So I was living with him. Um, you know, a lot of things going on, you know, things that happened in, you know, dope homes, you know, and, um, you know, ended up uh, finishing up at Chabot College, right? But that was, go but, ahead. What, but what do you think kept you going to school? Right after my aunt told me I had to leave, you know, I was living in Antioch, um, you know, I was going, I was on the bus and anyone who knows uh, Pittsburgh Antioch transportation, I was on the bus going back and forth from like, you know, Pittsburgh, Bart to Antioch, just lost, right? I was like, man, I don't know what I'm gonna do. My girlfriend just broke up with me. I got kicked out the house. She called me a loser. I might just be a loser. <laughs> I'm on that bus going back and forth, feeling like that dude in the music video with TLC, but no scrubs. <laughs> oh, scrubs, you on your scrub? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm in the back of the bus, 
And I'm sitting there, and lo and behold, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, right? You know, I was praying, and a voice was just like, you're going to be all right. You know, and ever since that day, I just, you know, told myself that that was the Lord. You know, the Lord would tell me I'm going to be okay. I just need to keep it moving. And the next thing that I heard was education. And so I just stuck to those voices and just kept moving forward and whatever hmm. happened, I just kept moving. Yeah. Hmm. And since then, I just committed myself to, um, you know, meditation, seeking higher power and all that stuff. And uh, it's, it's what I go to every time I need support. Did you ever question whether you wanted to stay? Did you ever feel like quitting? Or was that never even in the cards? Was you just like locked in around school? No, I, I never thought about quitting school. I, I, I knew that it was it was going to be my only ticket. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't see anything else. Mm-hmm. Like if I didn't go to school, I didn't know what else was going to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I knew if I was going to make it in life, I had to go and graduate and get that college degree. And and so what was your experience like with school? Was it like, did you enjoy it? Did you just like hate it and did it anyway? Like what was the... I, I really enjoyed school. Like I consider myself a, a student. Mm-hmm. You know? Like I enjoyed school. I enjoyed being there. What I didn't enjoy was like struggling and going to school, right? Like, oh man, how am I supposed to eat? You know, I got $50 in my pocket. I got to use $50 for the whole month. You know, like I didn't enjoy that part. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but being in college, being a student, studying, you know, getting together with my classmates, you know, reading. Like, I really enjoy that. I really do like school. You know, okay. I don't like student loans, but I enjoy being in school. So you were you were saying you finished Chabot College and then what what happened? I finished Chabot and then uh, then I got into San Jose State, mm-hmm. you know, transferred to San Jose State. The only two colleges that were accepting kids at that time was San Jose and San Francisco based on my grades. Right. Based on my grades. Okay. <laughs> and I wasn't coming back to the city. <laughs> uh-huh. I was like, I'm going that way. So I ended up okay. going to San Jose. Yeah. And I was out there, got my bachelor's degree. You know, um, I did really well when I got there. Really, really well. You know, stable, had a home, you know, was living in the dorms, um, got a little job, you know, and I did really well, you know. So let's talk about law school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened there? So, someone told me when I was a little kid, I remember I was I was living in Harvard. They said, man, you talk too much. You should go to law school. Uh-huh. And it just stuck in my head. And funny, because I met my real dad, my biological dad in the, later, and he tried to go to law school. I was like, well, there you go. Right? Mm. Now my kids, I mentioned I have kids. Uh-huh. One of them was like, maybe I should go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just like fate, right? So, but, you know, yeah. wanted to go to law school. Couldn't stand that LSAT. The LSAT was like, oh my gosh. Uh-huh. So 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 you enjoy school, you're at San Jose State, um, and you had this somebody tell you when you were young, you should go to law school, maybe as a diss, but you kind of like you ended up actually doing it. Did you did you know at San Jose State you were going to apply? Like, was that always the plan? Did it come later? Yeah, I was trying to go to Stanford. Okay. I'm going to Stanford. Uh-huh. When my LSAT scores came out, I couldn't even get into Golden Gate University. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I think I scored like a 140 or something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I took all the trainings. The, right. The Kaplan training, read all the things. I just wasn't good at that test. Mm-hmm. So I ended up uh, going, I got into a little small school in San Jose called Lincoln. And uh, someone was like, you should go to a uh, new college in San Francisco, you know? 
uh, New College is the progressive school that they built, which is now, you know, not in operation. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, all right, you know, and so I transferred to New College. Um, but my first class at Lincoln, I fell in love with the program. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, man, this is great. You know, this is what education should be like, you know. Um, things you want to learn about, it was intense. You know, everybody was focused on law. Um, and so I ended up transferring to to New College. And uh, when I got there, this is, this is how the whole education thing started. When I got there, <clears throat> I was going to school. I was living back in the projects, you know, trying to get back on my feet, right? Um, and then my siblings were going to Burton at the same time, Burton High School here in San Francisco. They were doing horrible, horrible. You know, um, Burton at the time had a large group of Pacific Islander kids. And I remember going up to check in on my little brother. And one of the counselors mentioned, they said, you know what, there's about 55 of these PI kids here and only five of them have a 2.0, right? And she said, I'm talking about a 2.0, not a 3.0, not a 4.0, a 2.0. And she said, the other 50 are not passing, right? Mm-hmm. That included my uh, brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was young. I was probably like 22 years old. You know, I was like, you know what? I got to do something. Said a little prayer, talked to a couple of mentors. One, one of them was like, listen, you can keep going to law school, get a degree in three years, fine, right? Or you can start helping these kids out. Think about it. In three years, some of these kids might be on the streets, right? And that really, that really hit me. Right. That really hit me. That was on a Sunday. The Monday I told my professor I was leaving, you know, and I just jumped into the to the work. And so I've been doing this work since I was like 22 years old, 2006, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Right. And I never looked back, you know. Um, so I've been in the field ever since. Another one of those calling type of scenarios like you left law school, but now you make laws on behalf of <laughs> and policies on behalf of the school district. So you're still in that, that world doing that, that policy work. Um, and, and so, yeah, so you, you mentioned a lot about like prayer and discussions with people. Were there any uh, like pivotal lessons or, or books or text that like, that really shifted the way you thought or how you pursued a particular like problem or situation? I think I think in my twenties I read a lot of books, read a lot of like motivational self help books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the real game changer for me, which kind of like brought things to, uh, to a point where I felt like I was being guided by my own intuitions, was meditation. I think when I got into meditation, things really started to shift. Right, mm-hmm. um, and then I'm really big on like you know self care, personal development. Um, the one book that I purchased a while back, which I still read today, um, is from Melody Beattie. She has this book called Letting Go. You know, it's, it's more like just passages you read on a daily basis. And it, it really uh, talks about how to like have having a healthy relationship with yourself. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for me, that was that was the pivotal point. You know, when when I figured out, you know, the things I want in life that I that I feel like are going to be like core to my roots and that really resonate to my heart is going to happen the more I'm, I work on myself, you know, internally, right? And so that's just kind of like how I've lived my life, right? Continue to take care of yourself, continue to pray and meditate. I do a lot of journaling. Um, I, you know, 
I'll read, uh, what is it? Um, Bell Hooks was another good one. I forget the name of the book. Uh, she wrote uh, a book around, uh, you know, loving yourself, which was really good. You know, mm-hmm. she writes a lot of those. But, um, you know, a lot of that, again, for me is around healing, right? You know, coming through the struggles and, you know, growing up, you know, in the conditions that we were raised in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the work that I knew I needed to do for myself was to take care of myself, right? And if I could do that work, I knew I was going to be able to have a clear mind and a clear, you know, soul and spirit to be able to focus on what's in front of me. Do you remember how you got introduced to meditation? Burton High School had this uh, quiet time meditation, right? And I've always had like some anxiety. I've had anxiety in life, right? And I kind of heard about meditation on the side and I was trying to do it. And then um, Burton, the quiet time program at Burton High School they just so happened was, you know, willing and open to train the staff as well. And so I got trained in Transcendental Meditation with the Quiet Time Program. And then from there, you know, I studied other meditation uh, practices as well. But it was it was through that program. And Burton, you know, I, so during my, I recently, now that I'm leaving the school board, we had like a little farewell thing with the Alliance of Black School Educators. And you told the story about seeing me on the street when I was a kid. But the time that I really remember meeting you was at Burton. <laughs> and uh, you were doing work with young people. And I think I might have been with the Ed Fund, but that's kind of how our relationship as adults started. You know, you were at Burton. Um, talk a little bit about it at, at the Beacon program. Before I got there, I was at the Bayview YMCA at the CARE program. It's the truancy program they put in place when, um, actually when Kamala was in town, right? They were trying to address truancy. And so we built this truancy program. And um, about a year later, they asked me to go up with the team to build the community schools model at Burton High School. And so when I got there, or when we got there, like Burton was literally on the verge of like shutting down you know, they're about like a maybe a 50 kids away from not being able to meet an enrollment requirement. And um, the school was like, you know, was kind of in a crisis, right? It's kind of in a crisis. And so uh, Bill Kappenhagen had just come on. You know, he was the principal. Um, they brought us in there. We came in there through the Baby YMCA as a Beacon initiative, right? So we came in there with the Beacon. Um, the Department of Public Health put some money behind it to provide mental health work. And uh, my job was to partner up with, with my partner was to launch the mental health component, you know, within that community schools model. And so and that's what we did. Right. Um, the school was about 800 kids when we first got there. Mm-hmm. I think about four years later, or five when we left, which was about six years later, the school was up at 1100 kids. Right. It was probably one of the probably still is one of the premier high schools out in the southeast side of San Francisco. And it was like thriving. The energy was go back. activate my third good Marshall uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. rivalry when you say that. But go ahead, continue. <laughs> yeah, I got love for Thurgood, so we won't go there. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so this, you know, Bill Kappenhagen ended up leaving. You know, he did a great job up there. The staff there, he put together was amazing. You know, the school got yeah. redeveloped from like a bond that was put out. Talk a little bit more about that because I, I interrupted you and I and I, Burton's high Burton High School's being rebuilt is a really important story. And you it sounds like you were there, yep. so it became one of the premier high schools. Like what what was happening? What happened? Um, so on our end, what we ended up doing was instilling that community schools model, and so what that brought to the school was literally like a million dollars in services and staffing that they didn't have. 
right? And we're talking about during the recession. So we got there, I think, around 2008-ish, 2009, right? We're talking about during the recession, during mm-hmm. the recession. And so um, we ended up weaving into their leadership. Our director was like right next to the principal. Um, we ended up instilling like a workforce program. We built out a teen center. We infused mental health services. And the other piece we brought together was a community piece. We brought the community into the school and took the school out into the community. So we were like launching events in collaboration with community partners like the Unity Parade, which still exists down over there in the Bayview. Um, we put in a credit recovery class. We put in a parent um, parent college class, it was. Uh, we just, we put in a lot of programs just to kind of like get the get the uh, get the energy going, getting the you know the opportunities and trying to close that uh, close that opportunity access for kids. So uh, when you came up there, we were talking about the youth and government program, right? Uh, the youth and government was a civic engagement program for the youth up there, right? Um, to get them uh, you know civically active, and it was a very diverse program, um, and it, it's still it's still going on to today, very successful. Um, we also launched the uh, Puma Prevent program. Right, which you know dealt with consent with young men here in San Francisco. Um, it ended up uh, reaching over, I think, almost three thousand kids within two years. Right, mm-hmm. and so it was, it was a, it was a, it was a really, really interesting time there at uh, at Burton High School. I mean, every year the enrollment was going up by like a hundred. Right, and I really do take my hats off to uh, you know the principal Bill Kappenhagen and the leadership. You know, with uh, Sonico's up there now, Ms. Thomas and everyone including the work that we did, you know, yeah. to really bring it up. And we're talking about a school that, you know, where a lot of black and brown kids are up there, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a large contingent of black and brown kids and, and a large group of Asian kids as well, you know, and they're very prideful. They, they love their school, you know, and they have, you know, outstanding teachers, you know, committed who have been there for a very long time as well. You know, the one thing I also want to throw in there is that quiet time program, mm-hmm. you know, when that quiet time program came, I noticed because what they did was they provided meditation for pretty much any student who wanted it. But you can feel the level of like um, energy start to just kind of like settle, right? Kids were more like uh, clear, more a little bit more focused. It wasn't for everyone, right? But you could feel the energy start to balance a little bit at the school, which I thought was uh, a pivotal point as well. One of the many compliments people often give you is about your energy. They're like, I, I love, I love his energy. His energy is like so amazing. <laughs> and, and, and energy is like, energy is a real thing, you know? Um, Cause it's not, I mean, I guess we call it climate in some of our school assessment discussion, but um, it'd be interesting to hear you talk about the importance of energy, like uh, what it means to you, like uh, how you read it, you know, um, what, what, what comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I first want to say that um, I'm a social worker and a therapist, right? So, like, um, I want to just put that out there in terms of, like, when people hear me and they hear how I, you know, describe certain things, it may be from, like, a clinical and a more holistic, like, uh, mind frame. Um, to, me, to me, energy really is, like, um, around healing, right? It really is healing and being able to um, show up in a place feeling like you are happy, you are at peace, and that you are present, 
right? And a lot of times, you know, what we find, especially, you know, in a city where things are just really active and moving 100 miles per hour, um, individuals could easily get caught up in, you know, that energy, which at times um, could not really be be your true intentions, right? And so the goal at the end of the day is, you know, who are you and what do you actually want to do, right? And are you focused enough to be able to settle down and sit through whatever uncomfort is coming up for yourself to know that this is what I really want at the end of the day, you know? I think folks um, could do that, but there's another level where you, uh, you can go a little bit deeper to the point where, you know, um, you'll be making decisions that are that are really true to your own personal heart and your intentions, right? Um, I think that gets lost with social media and a lot of the, you know, um, the busyness that we have here in San Francisco, you know, um, but you know, things yeah. like meditation is, is a good way to go about that. Yeah. So there's like, there's like a practice or like an awareness you can have to, to improve your energy, but there's also like, um scattered dysfunctional like or for lack of a better word i mean i i don't know if bad is the right word but um you know energy that isn't like uh healthy and so when you see that you know what's going on for you right right so here's the thing right for me and you especially being on this board when you're making a decision what energy is guiding that did you make it because you were anxious? Did you make it because you were afraid, right? Like everyone deserves a fair chance to feel safe and calm and as peaceful as they can be to be able to make a decision that they feel is right for themselves, right? And so when we're in a rush or when we're in a state that we don't really feel you know, comfortable, we may be making a decision that could potentially be hurtful to yourself or to another person or to like whatever you're in. Right. So we always want to be clear about, you know, what it is. And when I say energy, a lot of times it's like your intentions, right? your, your, your true intentions. What it is, what is it that you really want to be driving your decisions at the end of the day? Yeah. And so and, and you mentioned being a family man. I want to step back for a minute to talk about, you know, your first child, like uh, what was happening for you when you had your first child. And then it'd be interesting to also hear how you have these discussions with your children about you know, energy and and that perspective and how it guides your parenting? Yeah, when I first had uh, Isaiah, call him Zaze, I was scared. I was in my last semester of college. His mother was uh, still in college, you know. And, um, you know, I knew we weren't going to be together, you know, only because, you know, we weren't together at the time. She was my high school sweetheart. You know, we were doing the whole thing, you know, okay. Hook up, you go your way, I go my way come back, hook up again, you go where, you know. Um, and so it really was tough for me because at that time, you know, a lot of the homies were like having kids at the same time and they were, you know, staying with their partners because, you know, out of the, you know, their belief for the kids, but then they ended up being miserable or breaking up in the long run. So for me, I made the decision to just, you know, we got a co-parent, right? I have to co-parent, you know, I need to continue to go on with my life. But I didn't know what I was doing. Um, it was super scary. But when I had him, it was like the best day of my life. You know, it was like I tell every dude that I talk to, all my homies, oh, you getting ready to have a kid? It's like falling in love all over again. You know, 
Um, and so I, I don't regret it at all. You know, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, a couple of things. So they were like, so when, he, when my son was born, my mom and everyone was like, you should just send him to Samoa, right? Kind of like what they did to me. <laughs> His mom was not having it. She was like, uh, nope. You know, and I, and I thank her for that. Uh-huh. Thank her for that. Because you know, I was trying to go to law school. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I thank her for that. Mm-hmm. So we didn't do that. And, you know, we raised this child here in San Francisco. She thugged it out her last year in college, pregnant. You know, I did the same thing. Um, and then we ended up, you know, finding, you know, ways to like, you know, raise this healthy, amazing young, young, young man, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, you know, he's with me all the time. He understands, you know, um, what energy is, what meditation is, what self-care is. Mm-hmm. Like most children, he looks at their parents like, yeah, dad, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you know he's listening. When he comes back to you, he's like, you know what, dad? I just practice meditation. You know what, dad? I was just listening to jazz. You know what, dad? I'm going to go on a walk, you know? Mm-hmm. So your kids are listening to you. And I think as a person of color, especially as a man of color, you know, raising young men, you know, it's always important for us to just continue to like, you know, know that, we have to set the example in the role for, for our kids, you know, and they're watching. Yeah. That example, the power of the example, you know, and, and we're responsible for people's children, like in our school board work. Right. And like we, there's this thing that happens between what we say we want them to do and what they see us do. And so, you know, I like that you said that um, he's around you all the time and he, and you live it. So obviously he's picking it up as a result of that too. Mm-hmm. Um so you decide to run for office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's one for the books. And um, I remember the first time you told me I was I was it was at you and Matt Haney told me <laughs> at my first gala for Mission Bit, <laughs> and I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> what?" <laughs> Matt was like, oh, "Let's go find Steve." <laughs> <laughs> and you know you. You have people in your family that have been politically involved, uh, which we didn't really touch on. Maybe you want to t- talk a little bit about that and talk about your decision signing to run. So I was in grad school in um, San Jose State. So I ended up going back and getting a master's in social work. And one of the first classes you have to take is policy. And so when I got into the policy class, like literally the first week, I was like, we need to run for office. Right. Because I figured, you know, like, look at all these policies we got to run. We got to. Cause you know, I'm coming from the, I'm coming from the baby YMCA, you know, where we have to run these policies. And I was like, all these policies are being driven by folks who don't represent us. Right. That's when I'm, that's when I ran into you. Right. I ran into you kind of a little bit before that actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really interested. My uncle just became governor in American Samoa. And so I was like, Oh man, maybe I got a little something, you know, maybe let me, let me go over here. I'm like, you know, maybe I got some there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, got on your campaign and, you know, we kept going and going and going. And I remember at one point, you know, I was telling you, I was like, man, I want to run, but I don't know who's going to vote for me. There's not enough uh, Pacific Islanders in the city. And you're like, well, maybe you can run in like Hawaii or Samoa later on down in line. I was like, all right, so I'm going to just keep going. Like, just keep learning, learning, learning. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. Um, it wasn't until um, I started coming to those school board meetings because we needed like, you know, support for our Pacific Islander kids and um, I remember you said something, you were up there. Uh, you said two things that kind of like 
shifted me towards where I really need to think about running. Right. You said the first one you said was um, I actually text you. I text you I was like, Steve, uh, you guys are not talking about Pacific Islander kids. <laughs> and you said, well, come up to the podium and say something. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm saying something right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember this, but that sounds like well, how I would respond. <laughs> And so I was like, man, I don't even know if these people are listening to me. And I'm coming to these meetings, right? I'm coming to these meetings. I don't know if they're listening to me. Then you said something else. You said, I'm just warming this seat up for somebody else. Right? You said, I'm just warming this seat up for somebody else. And, uh, you know, and the fact that I had to keep coming to those meetings, I was sitting there and I was thinking like, oh, man, it was really pulling at me, right? You remember, I used to come there by myself or, you know, come there with like, you know, the group. But literally, there's not enough of us, so you got to show up. So I was like, you know what? I'd rather be sitting on that side than on this side, because at least if I'm coming by myself, I'm on the side that's making decisions and not on the side that's barking, you know, demands. And so that's what happened. You know, mm-hmm. I ran into Matt, <clears throat> ran into my mentors. It was like, it's time to go. You know, I ran into Matt. And then, you know, Matt was like, you should just do it. And it was, it's been a wrap ever since, you know, just like, all right, let's go. So, all right. So I will retell some of this about like, your first race versus mine, right? <laughs> and how, what a trip it was to see you doing it. So like, you know, like you, I got uh, a lot of insight and guidance from Kim Cherie, uh, Moffis, who was formerly on the Board of Education, and also support from Van Cedric Williams, who's now elected to the <laughs> Oakland <laughs> Board of Education. It's like the whole, the whole crew is elected. But for me, it was like, the first time I ran the, I think the cold lesson that everybody needs to learn is that like there, there are no, like, you got to like, get it. Like there are no like handouts, you know what I'm saying? You got to really like go, you know? And, um, and so I was intentionally somewhat distant from the day to day of your campaign. And, uh, but behind the scenes, I was talking to like all the people I needed to talk to, like I'm all, he's the only he's the only person I'm supporting. Like I'm all in on him. And and so to see what happened for you, one of the big endorsements for our race in this city is a teachers union. And they had, I think your year, like hella candidates. It was like like the year that I ran, there were nine. The first year was a nine, second year was eleven. I lost first time. You don't know what it's like to lose. I lost the first time. <laughs> And then I won the second time. Context people who don't know. And then um, my second race, there were like 11 candidates for four seats. And in your race, there were like over 25 candidates for three seats. Mm-hmm. And so that was crazy, right, to see. And I'm going to let you, I'm going to hand it over to you in a second so you can kind of like talk a little bit more about this. But everyone wants to teach you an endorsement mm-hmm. unless you're just so anti-union that you're not going to go for it. But if you want to be politically viable in the race, you'll get the teacher's union endorsement. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move over because the shades in my face, <laughs> the blinds are coming over. So the initial endorsement for all 20 plus candidates, they only pick you. They did. That was crazy. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> because like, I because you could pick three, but out of, over close to 30 candidates, they only pick you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> so um 
And then we'll go to the mayor endorsing you, but like, what? Talk, respond to, to that. It was crazy, man. I mean, I think coming into the race, I just, you know, I was like, I'm about to win this thing. You know, I don't know what I got to do, but I'm about to just go, you know. And uh, I just remember people were telling me, you just need to raise money, you know, and just keep going out there and just like talking to people, right? And so um, I had a lot of confidence that, uh, you know, I had the energy to do it, but um, I didn't really know what I was going to do until I got Glenn, Glenn, uh, you know, the consultant, my campaign consultant. And so he was, he was pretty uh, a big part of this. And so, but the teachers union thing, man, when I went in there, I was like, man, I just need to be top three. (laughs) 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 And I heard what happened. They hit me. It was like, oh, you got selected. Oh man, I was balling. I was Mm -hmm. in my kitchen right here. I was balling. You know, Mm -hmm. they were like, man, if you get the teachers union, that's pretty much lined up with the DCCC. And, you know, and I was like, oh man. You know, and, you know, I just, I was, I was all kind of, kind of emotions was just flying everywhere. And then later it was like, oh, you're the only one that got selected. And I was kind of like, really? Damn, what happened? I don't know what happened. You know, it just, I kind of wrote that way, right? I didn't really have too many people there. I mean, you know, I had maybe like, you know, three, four people that showed up who I asked to come, you know, but um, I, I just, count that on just like you know being in the right place at the right time you know mm-hmm. doing the work that you need to be doing and people really just you know feeding into um or understanding or like feeling feeling the energy going back to energy right just just really believing that you are the person that needs to be selected right now but um but i was on a high until other people got selected <laughs> i was getting all the endorsements <laughs> right. yeah. it was, it was a good time. It was definitely yeah. a good time. Yeah. Yeah. No endorsement, you know, at the end of the day is enough. People lose with the teachers union, they win, but winning here with the block that comes with it is really significant, especially for the school board race. And um, and that was highly unusual for, you know, because it wasn't like it was like 20 plus scrubs running. It was like some really like impressive, committed people. Yeah. And um, and you were like mostly in the classroom, you know, like you, you, you were with me, not the classroom, but like the school site, the community, right. That was like your world. And, uh, and, you know, you did a little more like related to my campaign, but it was like, but that's not really being politically known. Right. And so you came in fairly politically unknown. Mm -hmm. Um, You had some good people helping you and then you walk away with that. Right. And so that's not the end, though. I feel like I tell this, like, I like telling this story. So let me do this. Right. <laughs> I think, I think, like, you, I, I, I think actually you were connected to Malia Coleman, former supervisor of District 10, doing some internship work. You know, you, so it wasn't like you were just like a complete outsider, but you were mostly community doing really important work in the community. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think I ever told you this story. Maybe I told you this story, but. Uh, it's 2018. It's like doing your race. I'm in Mexico, right? And the mayor calls me while I'm there. And uh, I forget why I called her, but I wanted to talk to her about school board. And she was like, I like Faunga. 
And I was like, oh, good. I'm all in on fuck. That's like the only person. That's the only person that I'm supporting, right? And um, and we talked about a few other people, and I won't bring that up now. But um, she was like, I like him. And I was like, yeah, he's uh, like this, that, that, the third, whatever. We didn't talk long. Um, and what was happening simultaneously, and maybe this has already happened, but my colleague, Hydra Mendoza, uh, was leaving her term early. Her term was supposed to end in November. You know, this is her last year on the board. And she decided to resign and take a job in New York for the mayor of New York. So she was going to be leaving like in October. Um, and it wasn't a lot of time. November, the first Tuesday in November is like the the when the election day is. And so I didn't know this, but that because that was the only conversation I had with the mayor. But she ended up appointing you to finish out Hydra's term as you were also running to get the seat. Mm -hmm. So that's a, there's a lot going on there. It's like you have you have to bring home an election. Now you have the responsibilities of mm -hmm. actually being in the position. And so um, what was it like for you to get that call? Did you expect to be appointed? Like, what was that? No, no. Me and uh, me and Glenn the consultant, we were like, oh no, that's not gonna happen, you know. But you should just go, you know, because I had built a relationship with, um, you know, London and her team throughout the campaign. Um, so this is what actually really happened. So <laughs> I'm trying to get a meeting with London, right? Me and her sister actually are we're, we're friends, we're really good friends, right? We're working together, and I was like, Hattie you got to give me a meeting with your sister. She was mm -hmm. like, all right, all right, all right. And so um, something happened. I got the email for uh, London's campaign person who was doing the schedule. She was running for mayor at the same time. And she just so happened to be doing an event at a Samoan church. I was like, hey, can you meet her at this Samoan church? She's like, all right. So I go to the Samoan church. And then you know, after church, we go, we were looking for a little private spot. And we end up like in the, in the, in the attic, like this, just one table, two chairs, you know, nothing, right? Just me and me and the current mayor. And um, I was like, I know exactly what I'm gonna tell her. <laughs> <laughs> so we sit down, I go, London, you know, we the only people from the projects running for office right now. That's why we thought, that's why we thought I got the same agenda. <laughs> and, she was, and when we, and that was it, you know, she didn't say anything, you know, she laughed, she's like, huh, you know, and her sister kept bugging her about me, you know. Um, and then I, you know, she was doing her homework and she probably knew that I was in the community and, you know, working in public housing, right? And the mayor's from, you know, public housing, right? And so later on, you know, as we built that relationship, you know, I get the call like, hey, the mayor wants to endorse you. And I was like, oh, thank you, right? Later on, hey, let's have a conversation. You know, I'm meeting up with uh, her team. Like the mayor now wants to appoint you. We're like three weeks out, maybe like four or five weeks out, actually. No, we're like four or five weeks out. And I'm <clears throat> I'm like feeling good about the race. I was like, man, we, we about to win this thing, right? We're doing well, got the endorsements, you know, happy. Um, like, and then this shows up, right? And so it's like, can't turn it down. And I knew it was going to be hard because not only do you need to finish your race, but now you have to serve on the school board. So for me, it, it really was like not really a smooth transition. It was like you get put in right away, 
you don't really have that two months after November, the election to just kind of cool down, gather up, you know, you just get thrown into the fire right away. And so, but it, it, it was definitely, um, definitely an honor, you know, definitely uh, a highlight. You know, my family was there. I got, <clears throat> we did the ceremony at my old middle school, Luther Burbank, um, the school that kicked me out right before they sent me to the islands, you know, so everything kind of come back to full circle, right? Everything kind of go back to full circle. Um, and then I got elected in that November and then served my actual term in January. So, so you, you win the election. Um, you officially start your term as the people's choice, right? On the board. Um, and you've been on for two years now. Let's talk a little bit about some of those like major things, you know, I got, so from my perspective, I remember like every person that gets elected that's new is kind of like, um, what's going on? Mm -hmm. You know, um, how does this work? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, so we all have those questions when we start, but then like, you kind of found a groove. I want to say it took like maybe like seven months, you know, but before the end of the first year, you just kept like putting out resolutions. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> it was like, you're asking no more questions. It's just like, boom, 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 boom. The first resolution you wrote, you gave me before you won that we passed around um, doing more to support the Polynesian community around data and, and services, which you redid um, once you got on to strengthen it. So it wasn't like that was, you know, your first, the first ones you, you did one before you got on. Um, when did you start? When was it for you? Like you start to feel like, okay, I got this. Like, oh, I'm gonna start to just like get heavy with the, with the policies. Yeah. I think what happened to me in the, in the earlier years, well, you know, in the first year was, um, you know, truth be told, I was a little nervous to talk during meetings, right? Because, you know, in my head, I was like, man, I'm from the hood. I don't know if these people are going to understand me. And like the best way I know how to speak is just to speak the way I speak. Right. And I don't know how I'm going to be received. So I had a lot of, a lot of uh, self-conscious stuff coming up for me. And I say that because I found my, my voice in writing resolutions. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what it really was. It was like, oh, okay. Well, if I write this resolution, I could put in language in there that will convey to people you know, something that I've thought out thoroughly of what I'm trying to get across. Um, and so that was, that was, that was the first piece. Um, and then the second piece was really, you know, I found out early that, you know, if you want to move things in the district, you got to give these folks a direction. And a lot of ways that you do that is you either write a resolution, you set a motion in place, or the other thing that makes people scramble is you file a lawsuit, right? And so I, I learned that a little earlier, you know, I ended up getting a really good mentor who was schooling me up on some things. And, um, you know, I just kept it going and, and that's just how it's been. And so now my second year, I just committed to writing resolutions. I told myself, it's part of the job. You need to learn it, you need to do it. Um, you should get good at it. And so my second year, I just committed to trying to really get good at, you know, honing down on resolutions, how to be specific, how to give direction, how to collaborate with others to make sure that you're getting what you're trying to what you're trying to aim for. Mm -hmm. So I feel pretty good right now about writing results. I'm writing one right now. <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you want to talk about it <laughs> or not yet? 
not yet. Okay. Um, yeah, because one of one of the things I appreciated about uh, the resolutions that you wrote, and we can probably dive into like one or two of them, and I I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, but the response to your resolutions, like when I wrote them, it was like it's like, it was always like a surprise for staff. Like, you know, they were like, what? What's going on? <laughs> but you all, you wrote them like a collaboration with, with staff at times. And so they were as bought in to some of the ideas as you were. And it felt like a, I think it was a good example of uh, being collaborative uh, to, to put a good idea for it. And one of the initial things where that was evident uh or issues where that was evident was with housing. Mm. And so talk a little bit about that, the housing resolution that you started to write, like who was involved, what the, what the purpose of it. Yeah. That housing one was a, was a big one. I mean, um, before the pandemic, the educator housing was probably one of the biggest issues uh, we were dealing with in, in the state, you know, um, and um, it was a, it was a good challenge for me to be able to figure out how to like land that ship, given the partners that were at the table, right? So we had like you know the players, uh, the mayor's office was there, uh, the community folks were there from Choo Choo, uh, the teachers union were all involved, and then staff. And so I think the biggest thing that I was struggling with that whole process was. Um, you know, there's a lot of this talk around, you know, market rate housing versus affordable housing in San Francisco, right? And so really trying to line up, like, what are my core values and where do I stand on this issue? And then once I got clear with that was then to push forward. Um, at the end of the day, we landed on, like, um, a resolution that we all could buy into. I mean, well, maybe not all. Some people were not happy. But, you know, it's something that the district and our partners including, um, you know, the funding around it was was really clear and there was a path for us to actually make this all happen. Um, you know, because of the pandemic, a lot of that work has has slowed down, you know, especially because of the tax dollars in the state, uh, the funding just looks a little different. Um, but there's a lot of other opportunities that have popped up in order for us to, you know, get educator housing back on the, you know, back on the priority list, which I think we should do right now. You know, it's a great time to invest into, you know, what that currently looks like because of what's happening in the market today in San Francisco. You know, it's a good opportunity for us to get folks back into the city who want to be back in San Francisco. Um, but really it was, you know, a matter of like, you know, understanding, you know, your role as a commissioner and that, you know, people were looking to you to, to champion that issue to provide that leadership. And so, you know, I just try to keep an open mind, be as fair as possible, make sure that I'm listening to all parties and then really, you know, using all my resources to be able to make the right decision. Um, and then, you know, the staff essentially are the ones that have to do the work. So I have a lot of respect for staff. And so, you know, I know that if I pass a resolution and there's not, you know, some kind of buy-in, then, you know, the resolution is going to be stalled. And so um, I, I just made it a practice to like work with staff, work with the superintendent, you know, work with our partners to be able to push something out that we realistically feel like is going to land. And so you, you see the Ohio resolution, the Ohio resolution is funded almost a million dollars, right? And that's 
moving staff hired, you know, programs are in place, you know, um, mental health services are being, you know, provided to the kids. And that wouldn't have happened unless we did that collaboration. You know, before your resolution, like President Sanchez was talking about like, I think like 2,500 units. I was saying like 10,000 units. There was no actual, there's nothing written down about <laughs> how much we could build in terms of teacher housing by a certain date. And and then like you said, then you did it, you know, with the, you put like a, a clear objective by a timeline. Um, I think we added some stuff around rent subsidies. So mm-hmm. you, you sort of spoke about it in a general way, but the, you know, the, the really important part, at least one of my reflections from it, you may have others that it, they, it brought to the discussion was uh, what to do by when, which ended up being, I think, a really important lesson for me in policymaking period. Like we need, we need a deadline and we need a number that we're, it's, it's a point thing in life. Like, a, mm-hmm. you know, an end date with an objective, it just helps orient us all to a particular place. And the reason why that's so big is because before your resolution, it was hard to really work to get staff to commit to a number. Mm. You know, it was like, you know, well, ah, that's, ah, and then all of a sudden it's like, no, we can hit this number. <laughs> like the same people that was like that, saying we could do a number at all. We're like with you saying these numbers are possible mm-hmm. and uh, we want to do the end of the teachers. You were saying these numbers are possible. And, and so um, mm-hmm. that was, that was a real big shift in the teacher housing discussion, you know, which is a big reflection point for me. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to say to that or. Yeah. I was going to say um, when landing on that number, it really was like getting an idea of like where these folks were at where they were at, realistically, what the funding looked like, and what could we do? And I think we put like a 10-year time frame on there. And so, you know, I ended up just choosing a number, right? Choosing a number, this is what we're gonna go with, and we're moving forward. And it just so happened because we were all on the same page, again, bringing it back to, um, cause I just remember they kept saying, you know, you're the commissioner, you're, you gotta lead this, right? It's like, all right, you know, and which I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, being in these seats, you know, the folks are looking for us for that guidance, right? And so when we set the number, because we had all those other things in place in terms of like collaborating, talking, communicating, making sure everybody was heard, it was easier for people to buy and move forward with. Okay. So I've sufficiently kept you too long. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to do the rapid fire question round with you. Um, but before I do, say a little bit about what your job is now. I won't have you go into some of the stories that you tell me about what your job entails. <laughs> what, what, what are you doing currently outside of the school board? Right. It's like night and day. It's night mm-hmm. and day, you know. Um, on the school board, making policy decisions for the children in San Francisco. And then nine to five, I'm a crisis worker in San Francisco. You know, front lines, essential worker. Um, we respond to all the psychiatric crises in San Francisco. Uh, we partner with SFPD, San Francisco Police Department, Fire Department, um, and we pretty much assess individuals who potentially need a higher level of care of mental health services or need to be hospitalized. Um, you know, I'm going on a call later today where, you know, we deal with hostage negotiations, um, you know, folks who are on the verge of um, wanting to commit suicide. And then we also deal with all the uh, 
all the homicides in San Francisco as well. You know, we respond to the crises and provide triage. And so that's my nine to five. That's, uh, that's hard work. I love my job. You know, it's, it's good work. It's, it's what I specialize in. And then um, I do therapy around that as well. So rapid fire, you ready? And I, might, I might say something that you might have to edit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first question is easy because we've already talked about it. Uh, do you meditate? Yes. What's one book you would recommend? Bell Hooks. Um, I forget the name of the book. Black Cover. Start with Love or something in there. I forget the name. I have to Google it up. But it's a Bell Hooks book. Black Cover. Has red in there somewhere. It's a really good book. About this thin, this big. <laughs> David will find it and he'll post it when he edits. What personal weakness can you forgive in someone? Where'd you come with these questions? The <laughs> <laughs> <It's a> date. <deep. laughs> I guess lying. Lying? Lying, yeah. Lying. Do you have a motto? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, my motto is let go. All right, last and final question. The house is on fire. All love. The family members, loved ones, and pets are out. What are the three things that you grab? My phone, the car keys, and my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's out the house, right? Everybody's out. <laughs> All I need. <laughs> All right. This was one of the final cook on Monday mornings. This is commissioner, father, leader, spiritual, spiritually in tuned, <laughs> loving man, child of San Francisco, Faunga Moliga. Thank you, brother. I appreciate the time. <laughs> Sir, appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning at Cook on Monday morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. Thank you again for listening. And thank you for subscribing. Please do so if you haven't already. I'm grateful for your support. Uh, please share the podcast with a friend. Also, help us grow this community of doers. Please take a minute to also... Uh, rate and review the podcast on Apple, leave a comment on YouTube. It really helps people hear about and find what we're doing here. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During the Pandemic. You can check the article in the description box if you want to uh, you know, see how I started this one, the equipment we use, some book recommendations that would be helpful to consider. Check that out when you get a chance. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive impact. Uh, we build strategic partnerships between businesses and government. We recruit diversity talent into high impact roles, and we help companies drive impact in the places where they do business. If you'd like to learn more about that, feel free to email me, info at stevoncook.com. I'd like to thank the people that make our podcast possible, our videographer, David Topete. Thank you, David. Our copy editors, Fernando Sico Marquez and Devin Sketchinger. Thank you both also. I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. Uh, you are our teachers, garbage collectors, uh, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, fire workers, police officers, EMT workers, bus drivers, and nurses. 
you are our employers, the people helping create jobs and keeping our economy growing. You are our gig workers, uh, stocking ourselves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn. Uh, shout out to all of our listeners also know on the continent and around the world, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to do so because of you. Until we meet again, peace, peace, and be out. <laughs>